Hey, Planet Money listeners, if you're looking for other cool things to check out, NPR has a bunch of great podcasts. One we think you would like? Ask Me Another. Their latest show has John Turturro answering a bunch of trivia questions about Christopher Walken while doing impressions of Christopher Walken. And then Jonathan Colton does a cover of Walkin' in Memphis. Get it? Walkin' in Memphis? One of my favorite karaoke songs of all time. You can find Ask Me Another on iTunes, along with a bunch of other great NPR podcasts. I've been covering climate change on and off for about 15 years now. And it's one of those stories where, frankly, as a journalist, you get kind of burned out because it's essentially the same story over and over again. Scientists saying, hey, this is real. It could be bad. Sea level rise, giant storms, extinctions. Then you hear politicians, world leaders saying, yes, we must do something. And then and then not a lot happens. As a sign of how gridlocked we are in this country, President Obama this week struck out on his own to try to reduce carbon emissions in the U.S., But he's having to rely on a 44-year-old law that was originally intended to deal with smog. Had nothing to do with carbon dioxide. Here he is about a year ago when he first floated the idea. He made a kind of joke about it. 43 years ago, Congress passed a law called the Clean Air Act of 1970. And that law passed the Senate unanimously. Think about that. It passed the Senate unanimously. It passed the House of Representatives 375 to 1. I don't know who the one guy was. I haven't looked that up. I mean, you can barely get that many votes to name a post office these days. There was no way he was going to get that many votes on a climate bill. So what the Obama administration did this week is propose a new regulation aimed at reducing carbon emissions from power plants. Interestingly, does not say how the emissions should be cut. It leaves that up to the states. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. Today, we're going to explore one way states might tackle this problem. This is a show I did with Alex Bloomberg just about a year ago. It's tempting to think that dealing with climate change will be complicated and expensive, but it turns out it does not have to be either. There is a very simple way to reduce emissions, a one-page dream plan to solve global warming, a plan that could cost almost nothing. One of the guys who's been dreaming about this simple way to deal with climate change, his name is Henry Jacoby. He's an economist at MIT's Center for Energy and Environmental Policy Research. And he told me, really, if you want to address climate change, there is just one thing you need to do. If you let the economist write the legislation, it could be really simple. (laughs) If you were to write it, how short could it be? Oh, if I I were to write it, a page. (laughs) What Jacoby would write on that page is a carbon tax. Basically, he says you tax the fossil fuels in proportion to the amount of carbon they release. That would make coal, oil, and natural gas more expensive. And then, actually, that's all you have to do. To understand how this would work, I took a drive with Jacoby's colleague, John Riley. Obviously, gasoline is a fossil fuel, so under a carbon tax, it gets more expensive, and driving gets more expensive. What kind of car is this? Uh, It's an Infiniti. (laughs) With my kids all gone, I actually decided to do something luxury. This does give something like 27 miles a gallon on the highway, so it's not the worst thing around. But it's not a, it's not a Prius. <laughs> we pull into a gas station. In the first year of a carbon tax, he imagines the price of gasoline would rise by about 25 cents a gallon. Over a year, he figures this would cost him an extra $125. 
But then it would get more expensive. So the way most people imagine a carbon tax working is that you ramp it up over time, sort of tighten the screws and gradually push the economy away from fossil fuels. By 2050, Riley figures the carbon tax would go from 25 cents a gallon to about a dollar for every gallon. Riley does the math to figure out how much that would cost him, driving his Infiniti, extra per year. Then that would be about $500 a year. I might buy a more fuel-efficient vehicle. (laughs) And right there, Dave, that is the carbon tax working its magic. The idea is that people and businesses all over the economy, they would start thinking this way, making changes, course corrections, some big, some small, to avoid the higher cost. Here's Henry Jacoby again. You can decide, uh, do you want to harass your children to turn off the lights? Uh, Do you want to buy a smaller car? Uh, Do you want to drive the bus one day a week? Do you want to uh, insulate your attic? There are a thousand things that people would think of to lower the cost of of this activity that's got got the tax on it. The tax has has small effects around a a million different activities, and that's the advantage of it. it. It gets its influence almost everywhere. And this is why economists generally love a carbon tax. Those tiny effects over millions and millions of people and activities can have a huge impact. One change to the tax code and the entire economy, all of us living in the world, we shift our behavior to reduce carbon emissions. So to economists, this is super obvious. Uh, Fossil fuels have costs associated with them that aren't reflected in their price right now. So you just need to correct that price, make it more expensive. Although that does raise an obvious question here. (laughs) How much more expensive should they get? To figure out how much more expensive, we're going to imagine John Riley's life under a carbon tax. We're going to try to figure out how much extra everything would cost him and add it up. So we did gasoline already. In the first year of a carbon tax, he estimates gasoline would cost him a total of about 125 bucks more a year. So I'm going to keep track here. John Riley is our proxy for what life would be like under a carbon tax. We're at 125 bucks a year so far. And then uh, the next thing probably is electricity. Yeah, so here's my electric bill. <laughs> my electric bill last month was $46.27. John Riley figures that would go up, but not by that much, about $60 a year. All right, so adding that, 125 to 60 Okay, that's $185 a year so far extra that we're spending. What else is there? There's heating, which in New England, heating can be pretty expensive. You know, I think I did some calculations on, you know, the average household in uh, New England would spend about $1,000 on natural gas for heating their home. Uh, the carbon tax would add about $100 to that. All right, another $100. we are at 285 right now. Anything else? Uh, you know, I kept trying to find big-ticket items uh, like airplane flights. He said that's probably $75 a year. All right, let's see. Uh, $360 extra a year. Anything else? It, it turns out one of the most carbon-intensive activities is something – I had not even thought of. It's something that's right underneath our feet, actually. Concrete. And to get to the bottom of this one, John and I called up a guy on speakerphone who works in the concrete business. My name is David Perkins, and I'm with uh, TXI, based out of Dallas, Texas. And we manufacture cement, aggregate, and concrete building materials. Hey, it's fantastic to talk to you, David. Likewise. David Perkins explains that concrete is basically cement with some gravel and sand added in. And the process of making cement produces a lot of carbon dioxide. Making one ton of cement, he says, makes about eight-tenths of a ton of CO2. There are two reasons for this. One is that there's a lot of chemistry involved. You have to heat the ingredients up to very high temperatures, and that often means using fossil fuels. Just to create the heat. Just to create the heat. But then there's also the, the process itself. 
turns out to produce carbon dioxide on its own. You mean the chemical reactions by which the cement is formed, that produces carbon dioxide? Yes. So approximately 50% of those emissions of the CO2 that is generated from the manufacture of a ton of cement is, is directly related to what we call process emissions. And that's that chemical step that has to take place. So that's largely unavoidable. That's correct. We do the math, and it looks like concrete under the first year of a carbon tax, the price of concrete would go up by 25%. You'd be looking at a pretty significant impact, absolutely. This is one of those industries where it's hard to imagine a way to just make the thing, make concrete, without producing any carbon dioxide. And David Perkins says concrete is everywhere. It's one of those kind of things that you're likely standing on uh, uh, or in a building that has cement and or concrete in it, um, it, it, it's really kind of a, of a silent uh, thing that you don't really realize. Can you see cement or concrete from where you are right now? As a matter of fact, I am sitting on some. <laughs> so concrete, a lot of carbon emissions associated with it, but it's actually hard to account for in my tally here, right? So John Riley, he's not going to the hardware store regularly and buying bags of concrete. He probably doesn't buy very much concrete at all. He, he walks on concrete. He may work in a concrete building, but those things are no longer emitting the carbon. They were they emitted the carbon when they were created, but not anymore. How do we do this? Well, I, like at, at some point, right, if MIT does build a new building... Where he works. Where he works. Or, you know, and, and concrete is more expensive, that means maybe less salary for John or something. Or if the city needs to raise taxes to cover the costs of putting in new sidewalks, you know, that could impact him. But John Riley doesn't actually buy any concrete. So to keep things simple for our purposes, with him as our proxy, you can add zero. Can you add zero? (laughs) I can add zero. All right. So um, is there anything else before we go on? There's one other thing I asked about. If you think about the stuff that we spend money on every day, there's one big ticket thing we've left out, which is food. Oh, I love food. Food's a big budget item. So we went to the supermarket, and I tried to find things that had been shipped from far away. I was just picking up fruits and vegetables and looking at the label and asking John how much more expensive they would be. Would it be a big deal? Oranges. Oranges come from Florida. Not a big deal. Mangoes. Mangoes from Peru. Again, not a big deal. Kiwi. Where are kiwis from? Well, originally from New Zealand, so that would be about as far as you could get. Let's say this one's from New Zealand. Not a big deal. <laughs> the transportation part is not a big part of the cost. We look at the transportation and think that's the big deal. But transportation, you know, people put these on boats. Uh, it's really pretty efficient in terms of fuel use. So we buy a bunch of stuff, go out to the car, and then we look through the bill. So our grocery shopping, uh, $13.12, it looks like. And the total carbon tax would be? About $0.17. Cents. So if a headline saying carbon tax would be just 17 cents. Yes, <laughs> uh, if we traced it all the way through. He figures food would cost him maybe 50 bucks extra a year in the first year of a carbon tax. All right, so that's it, right? That's everything you have to do. We're done. All right, so our grand total, let me calculate this up, for the additional cost to John Riley, our proxy, under the first year of a carbon tax, $410 per year. That's how much it would cost. All right, so what do we think about that? Well, you know, first of all, for a lot of families... That could be pretty painful, right? If you're in the lower income brackets, you're counting every dollar. You're definitely going to feel this. And for some people, obviously, it will be way more than $410. If you have a very long commute, you spend a lot of fossil fuels, you have to fly a lot for your job, 
if you're a coal miner, you're probably going to be hit especially hard. And remember, this is also just for the first year of a carbon tax, right? The idea is that tax is going to go up a bit every year to force people to change what they're doing. But I do have to say, I thought it would be more. I mean, this is basically a dollar a day. Um, And you may have heard that phrase in public radio. I feel like if people are going to pay that for public radio, it seems a bargain for saving the world. Although, Dave, there is something that I would like to point out. You know, at the beginning of this podcast, we said for free, (laughs) $410, whatever you think about it, it is not free. Um, That's because we're not done yet. There is one more part to this plan, which is about what you do with all that money you raise from a carbon tax. It's a tax, right? So the government is collecting money. Everyone's $410 or whatever on average. And what you do under this plan is you would take that money you've brought in and you would give it right back to the people. All right. So just to be clear, (laughs) it sounds crazy, right? (laughs) You collect all this money in carbon taxes from people, you divide it up by the population, and then you write everyone a check. That's a simple way to think about it. Yeah, sure. How does this help? It feels like it defeats the purpose. You take 410 bucks from John Riley, and then you... Write him a check for 410 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's on average, right? I mean, I know it, it's weird. It, it seems like magic. But, I mean, imagine, right? In this scenario, gas and heating your house, all that stuff, it is still more expensive, even if you get the check, right? So there's still this incentive to not use fossil fuels as much. Uh, I mean, you can think about it from individual people's perspectives, right? If you live in a city and you get the check, you might actually be making money because the check would be more than you're paying in carbon taxes. If you live in a rural area and you have a large carbon footprint, the check isn't going to offset it all. But in either case, you're still going to hate paying that tax and you're going to try and change your habits and change what you do. And maybe people move closer to work or they still make all those changes. The more money you save uh, by doing something differently, that's extra money in your pocket because you're not paying the tax. And then you still get a check at the end of the year. It does seem like magic. It can't work. (laughs) Well... Uh, trust me, it should. This is actually pretty basic economics. And there's a way to take this magic trick and make it even more magic. You give the money back in a smarter way. You don't write everyone a check. You just cut their income tax. Right. So you give the money back by lessening their income tax. They get to keep more of their salary. Exactly. The same way in polls, most economists love the carbon tax. The same economists tend to dislike the income tax. And that's because when you tax something, you discourage it. And income is something we probably don't want to discourage. We want to encourage people to be able to keep more of the money that they earn on the job. We want to encourage businesses to hire people. And an income tax discourages both those things. So for economists, this is a chance to reduce a bad tax, the income tax, and replace it with a good tax, a tax on carbon, which is like a kind of pollution. In fact, if you do this... John Riley says, a carbon tax can be nearly painless for the economy as a whole. That's right. As promised, you can fight climate change and do it basically for free. This is almost magic, right? Because uh, in some of the work we've done, the whole economy actually benefits by that tax swap. You uh, raise the carbon tax. That does increase your energy costs. But you actually improve economic performance by reducing these other taxes. And the economy is actually better off. Can that really be true? Uh, Yes. (laughs) So I called around and talked to a bunch of economists about this, and they said, yeah, the basic idea was totally sound. If you give the money back by cutting taxes, you can probably offset a lot of the pain. Certain industries, coal, for instance, will take a hit. Some people will pay more than others. And if you try this in other countries like China, it could cost more. But if you look at the U.S., if you look at the economy as a whole, it's possible it doesn't miss a step. just keeps on growing. 
And of course, there is this one other benefit, the thing we're trying to fix in the first place, climate change. We're finally addressing that. And it's all because of a carbon tax, right? It encourages people to conserve energy. And also there's this other effect that, that I love about it that we haven't touched on. When you make carbon more expensive, other more environmentally friendly energy sources become less expensive by comparison. So for example, right now, coal is cheaper than solar, but presumably under carbon tax, eventually coal will be more expensive than solar. And then solar becomes the financially rational choice. And that's how you end up switching the entire electrical system. Henry Jacoby told me that if you could implement a global carbon tax all over the world, he says you could limit global warming to two degrees by the end of the century instead of where we're headed now, which could be more like five degrees. The, the kind of standard line that you have in the international discussions that we're trying to limit the, the increase to two degrees as something that would, that, would, that, that would avoid sort of the really bad out, outcomes. If, if you get to five degrees, we're talking about a world that we don't really understand. It's, it, it, it's deadly serious business. If, if we could hold it to two degrees, which won't be easy, if we could hold it to two degrees, I think that we, we, we probably would survive a lot better. But five, five degrees is, is uh, effects on, on, uh, on ecosystems and agriculture on sea level rise and such is, is something that uh, we just barely understand. There you have it, the one-page plan to deal with climate change. Time we could be walking around a zoo with the sun shining down over me and you. And a couple notes here since that show was from a year ago. As we said at the top, the new EPA proposed regulation would only cover power plants, and the regulations are likely to be challenged in court. But if they do go through, states will have to decide how to reduce emissions. They could go with the one page dream plan. Or they could go with a 100-page, really complicated, expensive plan. Or they could go with something in between. If you've heard of the term cap-and-trade, that's somewhere in between. More than one page, but depending on how you set it up, it can get you basically the same result as a carbon tax. Let us know what you think. You can send us email, planetmoney at npr.org. If you're looking for other stuff to listen to, NPR recommends Ask Me Another. You can find it on iTunes. Our show today was produced by Damiano Marchetti. I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. It was fun, fun, fun. 